This morning, as we take a look at Romans chapter 3, what Paul is laying out is the depravity of man, is that judgment will come, Uh, sin will be judged, Uh, whether it was on the cross, as you look back, or forward by those who reject Christ. So let's read in Romans chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying... Their condemnation is just. Father, we want to ask that you would do a special work in our very hearts this morning. Lord, these questions sound like a, a child trying to justify why it is that they did what they did. And yet, Lord, that's the heart of man. We are inclined because we are in sin, to justify our sin. We don't understand, Lord, because we are blinded by that sin as to why it is that we are to be subjected to judgment. But Lord, as we study your, your scriptures, I pray that you would make it abundantly clear the reason why it was necessary for your Son to be sent on this earth and to die in our place, to pay the debt that there was no way we were able to pay ourselves. That we would realize that we are sinful, and Lord, that there's none righteous, and that all need to come to repentance and a confession of our faith in you. And so, Lord, it is truly good news Lord, but it is only good news to those who realize that they are in desperate need of a Savior. And so I pray that you would make that abundantly clear this morning, that you would be honored and glorified and blessed. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. You know, in uh, starting back in chapter 1, we see how it was that the Apostle Paul addressed the pagan. In chapter 2, we saw how the Apostle Paul addressed the moral man. As we continued on in chapter 2, he also addressed in the second part of that chapter the religious man. And so here we come upon chapter 3 to where basically the Apostle Paul has laid out his case according to Scripture that all humanity is to be judged 
because we are all condemned by our own sin. We are depraved. We've fallen short of the glory of God. As we consider Jesus, it is by his finished work on the cross and by his resurrection from the grave that we, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, know victory not only over sin but also over death. We in Christ are justified by his grace through faith in him. We in Christ are redeemed from condemnation of sin. We in Christ have known a substitutionary atonement or a payment for our sins by a shed blood on the cross. And this morning we continue to learn what it means and why we are all in desperate need of salvation. That is through our study of the book of Romans, where Paul explains how we are all equally guilty of sin and condemned to hell, having fallen short of the glory of God outside of God's saving grace through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, it's wonderful because salvation was initiated by God. Offers forgiveness to all by the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. It is a personal faith. It is not something that can be done for you by someone else. It is done for you only by one man, the Son of God, who died on the cross for you. And it is is the expression of your own personal faith by which you will know salvation. With regards to eternal life, spiritual wholeness, being right with God, I know that it is difficult for people to admit and confess that they are responsible for their separation from God and to admit that they have no personal capability to get close to God nor gain their salvation not one bit. You see, we're a people that that likes to uh, do a work and then show our work and tell others about our work and how it is that we attain certain things, reach certain levels, gain certain positions, achieve certain awards. And yet with salvation, we have absolutely nothing to boast about. You see, salvation is entirely the work of God. He's made the way for us to be with the Father through the finished work of the Son. Other religions will tell you that you can reach God through a personal effort. Whereas Christianity is completely by God's grace. God gives no opportunity for man to boast of salvation. Zero. Not at all. This is where we we kind of get tripped up. As human beings, as people that have always been taught to to earn, to achieve, to work for. This one, salvation only comes through one thing, and that is surrender. Does that end? Does that come to a a close, to a stop, after we come to salvation? And the answer is no. No. God's work of sanctification continues by surrender. It's the same thing. Yielding. 
coming, coming under the governance and the lordship of Jesus Christ. No, God gives no opportunity for man to boast of salvation, for it is truly an undeserved gift of God to all who believe. He freely gives it. It's undeserved. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Why does man argue? One word. Pride. Pride. You see, we want a hand in righteousness and salvation, don't we? We want to say we have something to do with it. But in this chapter, God makes his case through Paul explaining how he is just. The Lord is just and righteous. And it is through the law that, listen to this, through the law that not righteousness comes, but judgment comes. But it is through Jesus and faith in him that justification comes. This is the act of being made right, the declaration of being guiltless, before God. How can God do this? And this is a question that we ought to ask. How can God possibly do this? It is through the sacrifice of the guiltless Lamb of God, as John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's Jesus Christ on the cross who atoned for your sin and mine, past, present, and future. Completely done. In this chapter, we'll see some common questions regarding personal responsibility for sin, the utter helplessness of man in his sin, and the justification that God secured through Jesus Christ to redeem us from our condemnation in sin. So what we're going to do this morning is go through the process of understanding our depravity, that is, our moral corruption. It's a good reminder. It's humbling. To be reminded that we, at, at one point, if, if you're a Christian now, at one point, you were depraved, absolutely morally corrupt. You were bankrupt. It's a good reminder. And it humbles us. Through the process of understanding this morning, our inability to save ourselves from sin. In God's act of redemption and his offer of forgiveness through his son, Jesus Christ. So three things. God is just. Number two, no one is righteous. And number three, God offers salvation by his grace. The significant, essential point this morning is keeping any set of rules or fulfilling any amount of work will never earn you salvation. But we only can know salvation by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It is a Dorian. That is a word that means an undeserved gift. It's freely, it's not cheapened. It's just free. Completely. Paid for. And it costs God his son. God is just. Let's read again in Romans chapter 3 and verse 1. Which says, then, what advantage has the Jew? So these are questions that the, that the Apostle Paul is asking so that we may have a clear understanding of when we ask those questions of what God's answer is. 
So follow with me as we, there, there's several questions here. There's a total of, of, I believe, four questions that Paul answers. Then what advantage has a Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying. And finally, Paul just simply says, their condemnation is just. It's like that's, that's the end of the questioning. We can continue going on. If you ever are trying to justify your sin, this is what happens. If, if you don't have someone that, that comes, God... And says, the word is final. You know, it's like a parent with a child. You know, you go back and forth, the child. But what, what, but, 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 right? And they keep, just keep going. <laughs> at, at some point, father, mother, you just have to say, yeah, listen, your condemnation is just. You know, the, the, the consequences are just. This is it. This is the last thing. Because this is what's questioned here. The justice of God. Is God right in holding man responsible for a sin if his sin reveals the faithfulness and righteousness of God and God is ultimately glorified? Is God right in condemning a person if in the act of evil good comes because God cannot be overwhelmed nor can his plans be prevented in any way? Is God right in condemning a person if through sin truth is revealed and God is glorified? That's what's being asked. Here's a question. Does God condemn or does a person condemn himself? Does a person have any moral responsibility? You know, if you looked around today in the world, the world would say no, right? Is God just? Is he morally right and fair in his judgment? That is the question we need to answer. First of all, what is the advantage for the Jew and what is the value of the covenant of circumcision? That that was the first question. Because the reason why they would ask that is because what was previously said to the Jews, the religious people. Paul had just completed an utter destruction of the Jews in what they believed would bring them righteousness. That is the observance of the law. He was saying to them, there's no advantage for the Jew if you don't obey the law. Outward circumcision really doesn't matter. Let's go back to chapter 2 and verse 28. The Apostle Paul writes, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. 
His praise is not from men, but from God. And so Paul made it abundantly clear in those closing verses of chapter 2 that the Jew had no, no salvific advantage over the Gentile, over the pagan, over anyone else. Because outwardly you can perform all kinds of rituals, but if inwardly, as a person, you are not sincere and it is not a matter of personal desire, then it doesn't matter how good you look outside. God is interested in the heart of man. You can fool man, but you can never fool God. God is omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times. It's, think about this. When Adam and Eve sinned, Adam made an attempt to cover because he realized his nakedness. When God was calling out to Adam, 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 where are you? Do you think God didn't know where he was? We think the same way, though, today. Oh, I, I'm, I'm hiding. I'm hiding myself. I'm doing a really good job. Why? Because I'm, I'm really smart. There are other stupid people, but, you know, I myself, I'm, I'm really smart. You may be able to deceive other people, but you, we, do, we, we don't deceive God. Everything is open to him. It's revealed, as it says in Hebrews. We will have to give an account. But Paul did say that there's an advantage and there was a value to the Jew on the covenant of circumcision. That is, the covenant of circumcision, you can go back to Genesis chapter 17 and, and look at it for yourself there. But he said, first of all, you've been entrusted with the oracles of God. Um, you've been entrusted with Scripture. You've been entrusted with my very word. Through the law, through the prophets, you've been entrusted with the oracles of God. In other words, you've been given God's spoken revelation. God communicated to them and through them. Do you not see that as a value? Do you not see that in and through that very thing that you perhaps even had an advantage If you had something that no one else did, and through you, all else, everyone else, would come to having knowledge and perhaps even wisdom, wouldn't that be an advantage to you? That was the Jew. By doing so, they could understand what circumcision meant and why God desired that the outward marks would be evidence of an inward reality. They, they were to do it after eight days of birth, from birth, the males were to be circumcised. But listen, this is just a cutting away of the flesh. But God was more interested in the cutting away of the flesh of the heart. It was supposed to be an outward expression of, in, of an inward reality. This being entrusted with the oracles of God was truly an awesome gift. Then the challenges start coming as if Paul already knew. Perhaps I was thinking, perhaps he was, um, you know, I'd been, he had been ministering, he had been teaching. And, and 
listen, if you're in ministry for any length of time, you begin to become very familiar with some of the opposing views towards Scripture. Uh, the excuses, the lines of justification, you, you are very familiar with all of that. And, and so Paul is asking these questions and answering them as if he knew. But of course, we know that God was using him to write this very word. The challenges start coming. Secondly, what if people don't believe or are unfaithful? Does that make God unfaithful? His chosen people, the Jews. What if they are unfaithful? Does that make God unfaithful? They're his chosen people. Listen, God doesn't make or force anyone to be faithful. (laughs) That wouldn't be an expression of faith. It wouldn't be an exercise of free will. It wouldn't be our choice. We would just be robots. But that doesn't stop God from being God. Just because he isn't God of all who reject him, who choose to be faithless, unfaithful. People's faithlessness, that doesn't mean that God's work is ineffective either. When, see, here's the thing is when people know the truth, and we've heard it said that hopefully they don't see you, the church, people from the outside, and think, that right there is why I'm not going to church. That right there is why I'm not becoming a Christian. Listen, may you not be the stumbling block for someone else, but everyone's going to have to give an account individually. Is that the reason why they're not going to work? Is that the reason why they don't do other things? Because perhaps someone cheats in golf? I'm not going to be I'm not going to go out to the to the course anymore. Of course not, right? Cuz I'm cheating too. Let's go. At, at work, you see people that well, you have people you work you work or you've worked with they're not putting in the same amount of work as you. I hate this company. If you're a reflection of this company, then obviously I don't want to be a part of it. You understand the, it's just ridiculous, the line of thought. I, I didn't come to church to base my faith and my salvation on someone else. Are you? I hope not, because it's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, people's faithlessness uh, does not mean that God's work is ineffective. Their rejection actually doesn't prove a thing as far as God is concerned. He's consistent. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's a personal decision. Rejection is a personal decision. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And Paul answers this in verse 4, By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Though all lie, God remains true. And you want this to be true. 
Because if at the time of judgment, if God's word is not constant and true, then you have no assurance of anything. It's all subjective. It could mean something different when you get there. You know what? I was just, you know, I felt like that at that moment. And I, I know I wrote that, but that's not God. You want this to be true. You want your salvation to be certain. You want God's promises to be true. If you have no assurance of anything, God is not just. Thirdly, if unrighteousness serves to show God's righteousness, then why would a person be condemned? Uh, Again, this is something that a person who is immature would say. A child. If punishing me will only serve to prove you're right, then why punish me at all? When I'm actually the instrument that glorifies you and reveals that you're right. You should be thankful. You're welcome. If this were the case, then God would not be able to judge the world. But he is just in doing so. He would be unjust if he didn't. Fourthly, people's lives reveal God's truth to his glory. Why then am I condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? Right? This, is, this is crazy thinking. But I tell you, you might sit there and think, who in the world would think like this? At one point. I'm sure there were certain these in some way, shape, or form. I was thinking the same things before Christ. If my lies actually increase God's glory, and if God's good will always prevail even if I sin, then why not sin and do evil that good may come and God may be glorified? And why will he judge me for bringing him glory after all? Some people were even accusing Paul of teaching this. They were slandering him. Uh, Teaching licentious living, the disregard of the law, an unprincipled life, which was not what he was teaching at all. 1 Peter 2.16 says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. This line of reasoning is wildly unreasonable. It is illogical. And it is just absolutely foolish. It's it's foolish. Paul's last response to these questions is what just puts a period on it all. It stops this line of questioning. He says their condemnation is just. You see, these questions are nonsensical. They're foolish and senseless. God is just to judge sin. So number one, God is just. Number two, no one is righteous. Verse nine, as we continue. 
says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. No one is righteous. In case you missed it there, in all of those verses that we just read, the Apostle Paul is saying, no, to your question, so really is there any advantage to the Jew? The simple answer, no, none, zero. That is salvific advantage, none whatsoever. Yes, you had the word of God come through you. But regarding salvation, are Jews better off than Gentiles? The answer is no. Both are under the power of sin, slaves to sin. They cannot and in their own power break free from sin. And this is what Paul does. Because the Jews know the scriptures. They, they know the word of God. Paul lays out verse after verse after verse to make his case. He brings the very word of God to testify of what he's teaching them. Let me just, I'm, I'm not going to go through them except for to refer to them. Uh, these are the verses that he covered. In order, Psalm 14 verses 1 through 3. Psalm 53, 1 through 3. Psalm 5, 9. Psalm 140, verse 3. Psalm 10, verse 7. Proverbs 1, verse 16. Proverbs 3, verses 15 through 17. Isaiah 59, 7 through 8. Psalm 36, 1. <laughs> Just one after the other. Any questions? <laughs> right? <laughs> I will. I'll give it to you afterwards. Yeah, I will. For anyone who wants the references, I, I will absolutely give it to you after after service. But yeah, it, it's just that's what the Apostle Paul did. By the way, this is why we ought to know Scripture. When people ask you certain questions, don't be you know you're caught off guard. Okay, but without an answer, well, you should have an answer after having spent time with the Lord and reading His Word and being students of the Word, because the Word does tell us to be students of the Word so that we may have uh, an answer for the person who asked for the hope that lies within us, you know, that we too could give certain verses so that we could help them understand. It, this is, it's all in Scripture. Everything that pertains to life and godliness is found in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, as it says in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 
at this point, Paul's audience should have at that point just been like, wow. Just, just in awe. Paul presented his case powerfully and proved it by the very oracles of God. It wasn't his opinion. They had these verses, this very word in their possession the whole time. Whenever you have questions, if you have a Bible, you have all the answers. Start reading. Study the word. Search for the answers. God desires to give them to you. Paul wanted, this is what he desired. He wanted to help them understand that people have no ability to save themselves. None. Our whole being is corrupt. He referred to the body, the tongue, the mind. I mean, just everything. It's just nothing but poison can come out of you. That our whole being is corrupt. We are sinners completely in need of a Savior. There's only one righteous man that walked the face of this earth. And he was the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He said, no one actually seeks after God. But wait a minute. Don't we have these things in churches to where we have these programs because there are seekers? You know, how, how do you, how do you uh, minister to seekers? Are they really seeking God? Do they know who they're seeking? What they're seeking? Were there, but real, in reality, this is what's happening. They're trying to figure out how to create a God in their own image to fit their desires and justify their choice of living. Why? Why? I can say that with great confidence, 100%, because the Bible says no one seeks God. And if you don't have knowledge, how do you know that you're seeking the one true God? Please answer that. How do you know? Just grab that out of the air? I don't think so. It says you're no one. As soon as you come in and you start hearing the truth, then, oh, you have, at that point, the opportunity to choose. Oh, that's God. This is what he requires of me. Oh. Then you have the power to choose. He also says our works are unprofitable. He regards our works, uh, he refers to them as it's just rotten fruit. Worthless. Regarding righteousness, our righteousness is it's like dirty garments. He said, we're inclined to do evil in thought, word, and deed. If you can just consider yourself, how often do you need to have the Lord correct you? Even in Christ, often throughout the day. There is sin because there is no fear of God. If there's an abundance of sin, it's just simply because there's no fear of God. No fear whatsoever. Personal, And this is all what he was laying out. Personal discipline is known when the fear of God is present. This list should summarize and conclude our guilt. 
and shut our mouths, really, to any attempt to justify ourselves before a holy and righteous God. By this, the whole world is held accountable to God. And that's what Paul was laying out. He was saying that the whole world, by this very word, is going to be held accountable. We're all responsible. Any attempt to justify ourselves before God by works will only lead to a deeper knowledge of our sin because the law serves to uncover our sin. If we try and lift ourselves up, pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And by the way, whoever came up with that saying? Have you ever actually tried that? Grab your bootstraps and see if you can pick yourself up. It makes, but anyway, if you try and do that by being good, I'm going to, you know what, I'm going to go to church and kind of, I'm going to clean myself up and I'm going to try and be better. You've already lost. You're done. You ought to come and confess, agree with God that you've fallen short and you need to just simply yield to him again. What I say at the very beginning? Christianity is a faith of surrender. That's what is surrender, surrender, humility. So God is just, no one is righteous. So that's what Paul is establishing here. God is just, no one is righteous. Number three, God offers salvation by his grace. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of, the, of Jews only? Uh, is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the, circumc- the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. God offers salvation by his grace. Now that it has been established that God is just, that he is righteous, and that he is faithful, and that all people have sinned, are not righteous, and fall short of the glory of God, and law serves to reveal our condemnation, we can now at this point move forward with a clear understanding of why we're all in desperate need of God's grace. You will not come and surrender with full knowledge to God and receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ if you don't even know why. Right? At some point, you'll be asking that question. Why did I do that? Verse 
Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love toward us in that while we were still, still sinners, Christ died for us. And so since it's been established that a person cannot know righteousness by the works of law because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, then God's righteousness has come through faith in Jesus Christ. But what does this mean? If it is impossible to save ourselves because we have failed to keep the law perfectly, then the only way to God the Father is through faith in the salvific work of the Son whom he sent. You know all those things that Jesus did on the earth? Gave sight to the blind. He loosened the tongue of the mute. He opened the ears of the deaf. He made the lame walk. He made whole the leper. Even raised from the dead. All those things. You know what they did? You may believe in those things. And so did those who were following Christ. For a while. Even those at the point to where they realized what it meant to be disciples of Jesus Christ turned away from him. Did you know that? Many turned away from him. Those works, those miracles only prove that he was the son of God. He was deity. That's what those things proved. But the work that will save you is not that work. The work that will save you is the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We are justified by his grace as a gift is what we just read. In other words, we undeservedly are deemed having no guilt in Christ. We didn't deserve it, not one bit. Just as Jesus did not deserve condemnation because he was sinless, we did not deserve salvation because we are guilty. But he offers justification by his grace as a gift. It's a free gift. We have been redeemed in Christ. In Christ, we have been delivered from our bondage to sin and purchased by the lifeblood of Jesus Christ. We cannot know redemption without the finished work of Christ on the cross. In John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We have been redeemed. We have been purchased by his lifeblood. Jesus is also the satisfaction of God's wrath toward our sin. God the Father poured out his wrath on all of our sin. On Jesus Christ on the cross. At that very moment, it's believed that that took place, that Jesus, being fully man and fully God, at that moment, he was overwhelmed with the sin to the point to where he uttered these words My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, Did he actually forsake Jesus? He tells us he loves us with an everlasting love. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. Would he forsake Christ, his son? 
You see, Jesus knew, though. He felt this separation taking place. It felt as if that communion with the Father was lost. That's what we should feel. We should have that kind of a of a sense about us to where we realize that our sin is separating us from God the Father. And it is only through Jesus Christ that we can be redeemed. We can be reconciled unto the Father, restored in our relationship. Jesus is the satisfaction of God's wrath toward our sin. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15... says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, that is Jesus Christ, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, no remission of sin. That's what remission means, by the way, forgiveness of sin. Our sin was dealt with, paid for. Our debt was satisfied by Jesus Christ. He is our Passover. That which was temporarily dealt with in the Old Testament through the sacrifice of animals has now been fulfilled once and for all through the sacrifice of the Son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, God is just. And He is the justifier of all who have faith in Jesus Christ. There's no boasting in self because the question was asked. So no more boast. So it's interesting, even at the very end. And like, so we have nothing to boast about? (laughs) No. Salvation is completely the work of God. God offers salvation to all. And with all of this said, you guys know John 3.16, right? Of course you do. But with all of this said, John 3, 16 through 21 means even more to the one who has gained understanding. John chapter 3, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. 
just takes new meaning when you have, again, a deeper understanding of God's grace. Is the law then disregarded because of faith? The answer, no. It's been fulfilled in Christ. But by its observance, we prove our love for him. Not for salvation, but because we've known his forgiveness by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. Ephesians 2 Verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's absolutely no boasting in our salvation. We need to humble ourselves before God, realize our depravity, confess our sins to God, Repent from our sins and simply believe in the finished work of God's saving grace by Jesus Christ on the cross. That's it. God is just. No one is righteous. God offers salvation by his grace. Have you received God's offer of salvation through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross? Remember, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but Jesus paid for your sins in full, and through faith in him we can know forgiveness of our sins, now and forever. And we can know the hope of heaven. Even though we don't deserve it and can never earn it, God desires that we repent of our sins and receive his gift of salvation without any personal cost. He paid it all for you. I'll read one more, and this would be this will be in closing in Romans chapter ten. Romans chapter ten. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Can we read that together? Verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's good news. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your love, your grace. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your truth. Lord, even though all would be unfaithful, all would be liars, Lord, you would be true and faithful. Lord, it's, uh, it's by your word that we come to uh, the knowledge that we have sinned against you. Lord, it just takes a, a humility 
on our part, Lord, to confess those things and, Lord, to agree that they are sin. We've, we've offended you, a holy and righteous God. And that if we remain in our sin, then we really remain condemned and will ourselves be eternally separated from you. We will be in hell and at some point cast into the lake of fire. I pray, Lord, with full knowledge, with a humble heart, Lord, that we would ask for your forgiveness, that we would cry out to you. If there are any here who have not surrendered their lives to you, then then I pray, Father, I hope that today would be, this very moment would be a moment of complete surrender. Lord, that that person or people, Lord, would completely give their lives to you because in that giving, in that surrender, Lord, they will know a lifting of their burdens. They will know the forgiveness of their sins. They will know a hope that they've never known. They will know the one true living God in that very moment. So I pray, Lord, that you would break that heart of stone, that you would give them a heart that is tender toward you, that they would be new creatures in Christ with a new perspective, with a new hope and joy. I pray, Lord, that they would surrender their lives completely to you, crying out to you to forgive them of their sins and to be their Lord and Savior, which they will only know through Jesus Christ. I pray for the church that you would help us to stay humble, to be gentle in spirit, lowly, to be kind, loving, compassionate, and yet filled with truth. Lord, that we would persevere. And Lord, that we would, Lord, be enthusiastic about your love for us. Express a joy because we have the hope of heaven. Lord, thank you for this moment in your word. We ask, Lord, that it was resonate in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray.